I'm, again, I'm glad that each of you are here today. If you've been around Calvary, either online or in person for a while, uh, you know that we've been working our way through John, uh, the Gospel of John, and uh, we're in John chapter 7 right now, and we've been there uh, for a few weeks, and we've worked our way through. If you remember, it began in the first couple of verses, we saw that John records that Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews... That leadership group, uh, oftentimes John uses that phrase, the Jews, to refer to, refer to the leadership group. They were trying uh, to kill him. John gives us this, also this date-sensitive thing, very important detail, that the, the Jewish festival of shelters uh, was near. Now, the festival of shelters or the feast of booze or the feast of tabernacles, it's known by different names. Uh, it's something that is in a very, very, very important part of the life of Israel. This is actually, though, one of, the, one of the few, if not the only time it's mentioned explicitly in the New Testament. Uh, it was a, a festival that was observed by the Jews uh, for seven days, although it kind of, in a way, went eight days. It began with, uh, on the 15th day of a particular month known as Tisri in, their, uh, in the Jewish calendar. And it was uh, partly to uh, perpetuate the memory of the time that they spent, their ancestors spent, leaving Egypt, and as they left Egypt and headed into the promised land, uh, they were required to wander because of their disobedience and, their, and, and not trusting God. They were required to wander in the wilderness uh, for 40 years, and in that wandering, they dwelt in tents on their way through that wilderness until they eventually landed in the promised land. And so this, uh, this Feast of Booze or this Feast of Tabernacles, this Festival of Shelters, as our translation calls it, is one where, that was commemorated from the time that, uh, uh, of Jesus' time, before Jesus' time, and it continues to be commemorated today. This is a modern-day uh, booth that you can see, and that they had to be constructed uh, in, in a specific way. Uh, all shelters were required to kind of conform to a particular building code, but it wasn't like the kind of building code we know, but it was a, a rabbinical boot, a building code, kind of like a, a religious building code. The walls were constructed to allow light through them, and that was a reminder to the Jews of their journey through the wilderness. And the roof had to show enough sky so that the stars could be seen through the roof. Again, a reminder of that time that they spent in the wilderness. It was that, it was that yearly reminder to the people of, of their wilderness wanting and, and of God's continual provision for them. We see that this was instituted, um, when, and we, we can see the detail of it, you know, actually, and I wanted to share that detail with you because of where we're at and the importance of understanding uh, where we're at with this festival as we get to the passage in John. So before we get to John, I want to share some verses from Leviticus chapter 23 with you. And you can see here that the Lord is speaking to Moses in Leviticus 23, verse 33, and he says to Moses this, Tell the Israelites, the festival of shelters, or again, you might know it as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, the festival of shelters to the Lord begins on the 15th day of this seventh month and continues for seven days. This is to be a sacred assembly on the first day. You are not to do any work. You are to present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the eighth day, you are to hold a sacred assembly and present a food, um, food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You are not to do any daily work. 
And so you can see that this was a, a really um, important thing to the Lord. It was an important thing in the life of Israel. It was this annual reminder of where they had been in their past. It was an annual reminder of God's provision for them. And when you do some study and reading on, on Jewish holidays, uh, and, and there, are, there are three that are required, uh, kind of like required to be attended if you live in within a reasonable distance of the city of Jerusalem. And the Feast of, of Tabernacles was, was one of those. And when you, when you read about the, the, the thing that, that really characterized the Feast of Tabernacles or Festival of Shelters, the Feast of Booths, it is this idea of joy. And this, this concept, and we're going to look at that and, and how that was kind of lived out in that during that festival. I'm going, I'm going to give you some detail today about that as we, look, as we look into the festival a little bit deeper this morning. Later in, the, in Leviticus 23, it also says, and these are again are the Lord's words to Moses. If you, if you continue on down, it says, You are to celebrate the Lord's festival on the 15th day of the seventh month for seven days after you have gathered the produce of the land. There will be complete rest on the first day and complete rest on the eighth day. On the first day, you are to take the product of majestic trees, palm fronds, bows of leafy trees, and the willows of the brook, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You are to celebrate it as a festival for the Lord seven days each year. This is a permanent statute for you throughout your generations Celebrate it in the seventh month. You are to live in shelters for seven days. All the native born of Israel must live in shelters so that your generations may know that I made the Israelites live in shelters when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So Moses declared the Lord's appointed times to the Israelites. So you can see in that that repetition of, of just that recounting of the words, Lord to the, uh, the words, um, Lord to Moses, and then Moses sharing that with the entire Jewish community that was alive at that day. You can see how important it was for God to communicate to them that He was doing this again as an annual reminder. He was doing it to remind them of the fact that, kind of like a humbling thing, because the wandering wandering in the wilderness was was an unnecessary thing. It really shouldn't have occurred. They should have been able to occupy the land many, many years prior to that. Like it shouldn't have been, it wasn't a 40-year a journey, okay? So, in, but, in, but because of their disobedience in the settling of the land, because they got kind of afraid and because they didn't trust God, they were kind of punished in a way by wandering in the wilderness. So it's a little bit of humbling to remember that they had to wander in the wilderness, but it also reminds them of the grace that while they were in the wilderness, God provided for them. So this was an essential, again, a very, very important part of the year. As I've shared with you throughout these, this teaching in John chapter 7, these booths uh, in, the, in the time of Jesus, they, they basically filled up the city of Jerusalem. Uh, they were all over. They were on flat rooftops. They were in dark alleys. They were in the streets and squares. They were in the courts of their dwellings and even in the courts of the temple. This is another kind of modern day representation. And you can see again, the walls are open so that they could see out and the, and the roof shows enough space so that you can see the stars. And I thought you guys might also want to see this next booth, which uh, some of you know, uh, Richie Rich. He was leading our worship at the first song today. And uh, Rich and his wife, Kelly, now this is about 10 or 11 years ago, I think, 
but I think you can still recognize them. Um, this is, this is, was at, at Shema Israel, I believe, is what Rich and Kelly had said. And so uh, a young Rich and Kelly Rich, a much in love and beautifully adorned for the Festival of Booze. Can we give it up for them? Let me put that up today. That's really nice. I appreciate you guys. You guys look great. So in this Festival of Booze, in this Feast of Tabernacles, at the heart of this celebration was something known that was a daily rite that was called the drawing and the pouring of the water. At the heart of this celebration was this, this, uh, this, I, this, this, this idea and this, and this actual event where there would be a, a processional or there, there would be a, a celebration and there would be a, a particular sort of, of ceremony that would, that would take place that would really be something that was, was full of joy, that brought the, the Israelites joy as they remembered it. So each morning, these great multitudes of people, people, everybody who was there in Jerusalem each morning, would gather at the, at the temple of Herod. They would be carrying in their one hand a, a citrus fruit, which was called an ethrog, and that was in their left hand. Ethrog was a, was a reminder of the land to which God had brought them and the, the kind of like the blessings and the bounty that they had. In their right hands, they carried a, what's come to be known, in, if, if you read about it today, uh, as a lulav. But the lulav really is specifically referring to a palm frond. And so they would actually have three fronds in their right hand. It would be a palm, a willow, and a myrtle. And so each morning, the people would gather with their ethrog and with their lulav, with these, three palm, with these three fronds in one hand and this citrus fruit in the other. And they followed the priest, and the priest was carrying a golden pitcher to a particular pool, a pool of Siloam, which, is, which means scent. And so they would be chanting psalms, and they would be waving their lulavs. And again, we, you're talking about an enormous throng of people. So it's very noisy. It's very joyous. And by the way, from, from what we read about from, from some of the ancient literature, not only did, did this thing happen in the early morning, but it was preceded by basically an all-night party. The, 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 the party happened before that. So they, many of those people probably hadn't even been to bed. The singing and the dancing that had happened the night before went on until daybreak. And so uh, for all the days of the festival, this would be happening. And uh, one rabbi said it this way, our eyes saw no sleep. That's the way he said. You know, it was just this continual ce celebration. And so these people, after they had partied all night, they're, they're out there and they're waving their, their fruit in one hand and their, and their, fr their fronds in the, other, in the other hand, and they're following the priest. The priest would dip his pitcher into the water, and the people would say, as he, as he went, went into the pool of Siloam, and again, they're, they're singing, they're chanting, they're dancing, they're waving, and the, the priest would dip his water, uh, pitcher into the water, it was a gold pitcher, a guy, draw out about a liter of water, and, he would, and, and they, the people would say at that point, they would quote Isaiah 12, 3, therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. The crowd then marched back to the temple, entering the water gate, then it was thus named because of this ceremony, actually. It, it was in, they entered the water gate to the blast of the priest's trumpets. The priest who led them circled the altar one time, and with accompanying priests, he ascended to the platform and poured out the water on the altar. 
Now, as the priests did this, the Pharisees believed this is what they were supposed to do. They believed that this was something they were directed to do by God. Some of you know there was another sect of Jews known as the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the pouring of the water. They only believed in the pouring of the wine. Now, in, in the daily offerings at the temple, there would always be a pouring of, a, of the wine on the altar. But at, at Sukkot, or at the Feast of Tabernacles, at, that, that, at, that, at the Feast of Booze, at the Festival of Shelters, it would be this time where they would also pour the water as well as the wine. The Sadducees, because they had a different way of interpreting a particular, some particular verses, they disagreed with the Pharisees' interpretation because it wasn't explicitly mentioned, this pouring of the water. And so because they didn't agree with the interpretation of the Pharisees, the Sadducees didn't believe it. In fact, if you read in history, it's said, and I don't know if it's real or if it's legend, but it's been said that, one, that there was a Sadducee who one time was carrying the pitcher, and as he went up, it was, it was, uh, uh, he was accused of spilling some of the water on his, on his feet. And so there was this tradition that happened that when the priest got up to the altar and was ready to pour it, they had him hold his hands up. Because if he spilled any, they would do what they did to that Sadducee priest. You know what they did? They all took those citra, those fruit, that, those ethrogs, and they pelted him with it because he spilled some of that precious water on his feet instead of pouring it out on the altar. Now, whether that's 100% true or not, I'm not sure. That's kind of extra biblical kind of stuff. But it is kind of gives you that feature of kind of what's going on in this celebration and how important it was in the life of Israel. So again, this, this priest goes up there and he, he pours out the water. Many people believe that in the pouring out of the water, not only was it symbolic of, the, again, of the provision that God had made for them, but also it was, it was somewhat acted as a prayer for rain. Uh, there was a particular uh, rabbi, and he died in 134, but the saying goes back a little bit before that. So it could have been at the time of Jesus as well, that when they poured that water onto the altar, it also acted as a symbolic prayer for rain for the next year as they celebrated the bounty of the current year. Make sense? So that's what's happening here. Every morning, there's these sleepy people rubbing the sleep out of their eyes, you know, maybe trying to, to you know, get it together after this wild night of, of partying. You know, they, they get together, they, they, they meet the priest, they go through this whole thing, and they go down to the altar. He walks around it, he pours it out, and there's this huge shout. Now, on the seventh day, it's a little bit different. Everything happens the same way as it did all of, all of the six other days that preceded this seventh day. But on the seventh day, the priest doesn't walk around. Some people suggest, and again, there's a little bit of, you know, of uh, debate about this, but many people suggest that the priest didn't walk around the altar one time, but he walked around seven times. Like, if you remember what happened in the city of Jericho when they marched around the, altar, marched around the city seven times before the, seven, before the, uh, the city fell. And so, somewhat symbolic of that, the, the, this, this uh, seventh and final day of the feast, the priests and the people would repeat the very same thing that they had done every other day. They came into the temple, chanting their psalms, waving all their fruit. As they entered the water gate, the trumpet sounded. On the seventh day, though, the priest would circle seven times in succession. And when he came around for the sixth time, he would be, he would be joined by another priest who was carrying the wine. They would ascend the ramp together to the altar where together they would pour out the water and the wine on their, on their altar. And when they were in place, there would come a pause for that priest to raise up 
again his pitcher. And always the crowds would shout for him to hold it higher and higher and higher. It was the height of a person's joy. I don't know, I don't know uh, what we could compare it to today. But the, the rabbis thought that that was such a, an enormous privilege to be able to do that. To be able to, on the seventh day of that feast, to walk around that altar seven times and to pour out that water. There, water, there was a rabbinic saying that said this. He that never has seen the joy of the water drawing has never seen in his life joy. It was thought to me that, that almost the embodiment of pure joy of this incredible celebration. And that brings us to our passage in John. So with all that historical and biblical background, we see then John say this. On the last and most important day of the festival. Now, you would think that, you know, there's some things in Scripture that it's kind of hard to know exactly how to interpret it. There's different ways to interpret things. Now, you would think something so straightforward and linear, right, as on the last and most important day of the festival, it would be pretty easy to determine, well, which is the last day? (laughs) Well, it's not, of course, right? Kind of sets you up for that one. You see, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 13, in the, in the original words that God gave to Moses about the Feast of Booze, it says, and he says to, to him twice in verse 13 and verse 15 of Deuteronomy 16, for seven days you will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. But from what I read earlier in Leviticus, you saw that there was this eighth day. Now some say, well, did, was it originally a seven-day festival, but later it was lengthened by one for this assembly that took place on the eighth day? Is the assembly on the eighth day something that always existed from the beginning? Sorry, but we don't know. So some of you might be asking, so when John says on the last and most important day of the festival, this day of the, the, this, this day might have been the day of, that, of the water pouring after the marching around of the seven times, or is it the eighth day? And on the eighth day, ironically, there is no pouring of water. There's no pouring of wine. There's no processional. There's none of that. It's almost like the ceremony, the festival proper is seven days, and the eighth day is kind of like a sacred or solemn assembly, and maybe it's to recover from all that stuff you've been doing for seven days, right? That takes a toll on somebody. On the last and most important day of the festival. So with that in mind, Either on the seventh day, which was the absolute high point, right? Raise it higher, priest. Raise it higher. Don't spill any or we're going to pelt you. Raise it higher. And they're filled with joy and they're waving, they're shouting, they're dancing, they're singing. Maybe it was on that day or maybe it was on a day in which none of that occurred. And so Jesus made up for that with what he's about to do. I don't know. I can't say with definitiveness which one it might have been. But it was the most important day. (laughs) On the last and most important day of the festival, as with everything, right, Jesus' sense of timing is always perfect. He never does anything a little bit early or a little bit late. He's always right on time. And his message then rings so clear and true. So what does Jesus do on this last 
and most important day of this festival. The most joyous occasion in the, in the year for his people. What does he do? Well, the first thing we see is he reveals himself. He stood up so he could be seen. And he cried out. Now, we saw this word last week, cried out. And, and I shared it with you what it was. It's the word kratzo. It means to croak as does a raven or to scream. It means to call aloud, to cry out in a loud voice. It's used oftentimes in the Gospels to pre- precede something, to identify something as very important that's about to follow. So remember, when Jesus came to the Feast of Yeshua, if we go all the way back, I can't, don't have the time to, to review the, the history of the Feast of Tabernacles and all of chapter 7, but remember that Jesus didn't come to the feast at the start of the feast because it wasn't the right time, right? He came up secretly and, and not with a big crowd. But then he began to teach openly, and, and there was a lot of discussion about him. Is this guy the Messiah? He's a good man. No, he's a deceiver. There's a lot of discussion and debate about him, and people are like, wow, isn't this the guy that people were trying to kill? And look, he's just talking openly, publicly, right? We, looked at, we saw that last week, how he was speaking frankly, openly, and courageously as, as he was teaching them. And he's sharing with them important things about where he's from and who he is and what his teaching is all about. And through all of this, Jesus' time is always impeccable. So the first, and what is his goal? His goal, in, as, as John has made clear in this gospel, Jesus' goal is that people would come to know and believe that he is the Messiah, that he is the one, that he is God's son, that he is God in the flesh, and that he is the one to whom we should put our faith and hope and trust, in whom we should put our faith, hope, and trust. So Jesus stands up and cries out. Now remember all that background that I I shared with you about this incredible joyous occasion and the daily pouring out of the water and that special pouring out of the water on the seventh day. Jesus stands up and he cries out with this incredible invitation to them. After they've already witnessed it for seven days or maybe as they're witnessing it on the seventh day, Jesus says to them, if anyone is thirsty... You see why he's crying out, crying it out, why he's speaking it in a loud voice? He doesn't want anyone to miss this. It's always something super important. It's going to, not that Jesus ever shares anything that's unimportant, but he cries out in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now we see those words And we don't have all this context. We haven't been partying for seven days. We haven't been singing and dancing and eating and drinking and hanging out with friends. We haven't been waving our branches and holding our fruit and shouting, higher, 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 priest. We haven't been reminded of the way God both humbled us but provided for us. We haven't witnessed that, uh, that liter of water being poured out on that altar every day for seven days. But they had. Everyone who's within the sound of his voice had experienced all of those things. And Jesus, the fulfiller, I would say, right? Not there to abolish the feast, but to fulfill the feast. Says to them, if anyone is thirsty, by the way. Let him come to me and drink. What an invitation. 
Jesus is revealing to him, himself to, the, to, his, uh, to those first people, to those ancient people in Jerusalem. And John is representing it to those first readers of his gospel and to us today. This incredible invitation that comes from Jesus. That if, there, if we would see ourselves as something, uh, as missing something, as needing something, as being people who are spiritually thirsty, then come to him and drink. And when that happens, Jesus says there will be an incredible impact on their life. Because the one who believes in me, which I think is basically synonymous for the one who comes and takes a drink. The one who believes in me, as scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow deep from within, flow from deep within him, excuse me. The one who believes in me will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. The impact of, this, of, of Jesus' invitation on our lives is when he, we come to him, and we recognize that he is, just as he said to the, uh, to, to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, that if we come to him, he will provide for us water that will quench our thirst in such a way that we will never thirst again. He is the bread of life, so that if we feast on him, we will never hunger again. And here Jesus says, if we believe in him, we will have streams of living water flow from, from deep within us. And I think there, there's a two-fold, there's a two-pronged kind of impact of this. Certainly it is the work of God in us because this isn't something we do for ourselves, right? When we receive Jesus by faith, when we put our faith and trust in him, when we believe in him, then God places within us this life. We are regenerated. We are made new. We are filled with that living water. We have tasted of that living bread so that we will never be hungry, hungry again. But when we do receive that new life, then there also is this, this aspect that our life then begins to be a source of blessing to others. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, there's more about the Hebrews being a blessing to others in reference to this whole idea of being living water flowing from within us. Because remember, that living water doesn't just sit in us. We're not just a bucket, a receptacle for the grace of God. But instead, we are a stream, what God has placed within us, what? This stream of living water, something that flows out. So the grace that we have received flows out onto others when they encounter us. That's the impact of what Jesus has on our lives. It's not just about only that which we receive. That's incredible. That's phenomenal. But it's not just about God filling up your bucket. It's about him turning you into something that would spill out onto the rest of your world in a way that represents the person of Jesus. What a powerful impact that is. What a powerful impact we can have. Think of it. Think of it this way. Remember what I said? Track with me for just a second. Remember what I said about that, that pouring of the water? That, this only happened for these seven days of the entire year. Priests never poured water on the altar any other times. 
Think about every day seeing that pour out, pour out, pour out. And what did, that, what did I say it felt? It was such a source of joy. It was a reminder of the provision of God. And it was, it was a celebration of joy. I wonder, in the same way that the water was poured out on the altar that caused such great joy for those who were there, what about the water of our life? When we pour out onto others, are we a source of joy? Is that how people experience us? I wonder if Jesus had that in mind when he said, the one who believes in me will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. I pray that each one of us might understand the inc- and have incredible gratitude for that which God does in us and for us by providing us salvation through his son, but that we also might hear this clarion call from Jesus as well to allow that which we've received to be that which we give, right? Think about that. Love the way God loves. Forgive the way God forgives. Aren't those all very real uh, directives and concepts and ideals of the New Testament? Absolutely. So in the way in which God changes our life with this living water that comes from Jesus, may our lives change others. So the timing of this, on that last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and he shrieks out, he cries out, he calls out in a loud voice to all who would hear him and to us today, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And this impact of that responding in faith would be that, the, that each of us who do believe, we would have these streams of living water flowing from deep within each of us. As we go toward the kind of the end of the section that we'll be covering today in that verse 39, John comments this about what Jesus had just said. If you look at verse 39 with me, he said this about the spirit, meaning Jesus said this very thing about the spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. It's a little bit of a tough verse for translators um, because the actual literal word-for-word translation would go this way. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit for for it was not yet Spirit. That's all it says. For it was not yet Spirit. You're like, So translators faced with that were like, well, what does that mean? It was not yet spirit. And so many translators in our English Bibles, you can see, um, to make sense of this, have chosen for the spirit had not yet been given. That's not a one-to-one. That's not a a literal one-to-one word-for-word translation. That's a way in which the translators are trying to make sense of a phrase that otherwise kind of is confusing. It doesn't quite make sense. For it was not yet spirit. What do you mean it was not yet spirit? So as, as, you, as you study that and you try to understand what exactly John was trying to communicate there, it was the idea that was the spirit active at the time of Jesus? Absolutely. Was the spirit active in the time of the, in what we would call like the Old Testament times? Sure it was. But it was not yet active in all of its fullness. As one commentator said, it kind of goes this way. The work of the Son preceded the work of the Spirit. 
Not that the Spirit was not, yet, was not active at all, because we know that he, that he was, that the Holy Spirit was active at the time of Jesus. But it wasn't in its, in its entire fullness. And so the idea is that Jesus' earthly work, his earthly ministry, his death would have to occur before the Spirit's work would then take over from that point. So I would suggest to you that's what it means when John says it was not yet Spirit that it was, the Spirit had not yet been given, the Spirit would be fully given on the day of Pentecost to the early church after, the, after Jesus had ascended back to the Father. But at this time, uh, John just wants to make sure that we understand that what Jesus is referring to here is the work in the Spirit, work of the Spirit, I'm sorry, in the life of the believer to create in him or her these streams of living water that flow from deep within. Now, you might ask, what is this ancient Jewish ceremony and these words, for Jesus, words from Jesus, what does that all have, how does it have anything to do with me? But I, I would just encourage you to consider this this morning, that that same invitation that Jesus made to those people on the seventh or eighth day of the Festival of Shelters in that year, in that seventh month. That same invitation that happened in Jerusalem thousands of years ago is here for you today. He wants you to know that there is no greater joy than to receive him And by the work of his spirit, have streams of living water be placed within you so that they may flow out of you. That's God's invitation to you today. And I pray that as each of us hear those words from Jesus that he didn't want anyone to miss, and that's why he stood up and said it in a very loud voice, that we wouldn't miss it today that our lives would surrender to that very truth that Jesus shared many years ago. And John recounted for us under the inspiration of God so that we may hear that same one today. We're actually going to be, uh, you might have noticed, you know, we didn't have uh, too many worship songs at the start of the service today. We're actually going to close our service today uh, with time, a time of worship. And I pray that in the same way that on that festival of shelters, the people would have been filled with joy because of the provision of God in their lives, that we today can worship with joy because of the work of God in our lives. Because we have come to him and have drank of that living water. And it's within us today, all by the miraculous and mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. May our worship today be one that's full of joy and full of hope and full of gratitude for that same God who provided for the Israelites on those 40 years in the wilderness. He provides for us today and even deeper because he provides for us eternal life. Would you stand with me as the worship team comes? I'm going to pray to kind of lead us into that time of worship. Heavenly Father, I pray that those words that were spoken by Jesus 
would resonate in our hearts today. I pray that we would not miss this incredible, powerful, loving invitation that comes from you, your heart, to partake of you. So God, if we're standing here today and we find ourselves listless, wondering, struggling, thirsty, help us to recognize that you can bring satisfaction to our souls. And we pray, God, that as we worship you, that our worship would spring from a, that heart of satisfaction, that heart of joy. We express these songs and these words and these, these um, musical offerings, Lord, back up to you, the one who gives us life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.